Well, good morning. Uh, welcome, everybody. Glad to have you. It's really odd that everybody's sitting so far forward. That's, it's great, and it's unnerving at the same time. I'm not used to it, so I, I really like it. Um, I think today's going to be uh, fun in the sense that I think it'll be profitable. I think uh, it'll be interesting. Um, so I'm really, really kind of looking forward to jumping in. I'm calling this uh, the law or, you know, special topics on the law because we're not going through a real, like, systematic treatment of God's law. What we're going to do is kind of talk about some special issues and stuff. And the kind of the motivation is understanding a little bit about God's law before we get into sin. Because um, either next week or the week after, you know, when, whenever we wrap this up is when we're going to... Um, kind of get into that topic. Does anybody know the, except for the kurdos, does anybody know the, the, the technical word for the study of, uh, of sin? Synology, you would think, you would think, yeah. Um, no, but that, that's, um, that's actually the study of George. So, yeah. No, um, no, it's harmadiology. Harmodiology. I can never say it very well. I get I get tongue tied, but it's kind of one of those unintuitive ones. Um, so anyway, so let's pray and then we'll we'll get started. Um, but as you can see, but first we've got something else. Uh, so Father, thank you once again uh, for this morning and this time. Um, these just folks coming together um, and studying uh, your word and studying who you are and getting to know you just a little bit better, getting to know one another just a little bit better. And Father, just help us keep um, our eye on the fact that um, the reason we're here and the reason we exist in the first place is to bring uh, glory to you. And we love you, we trust you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. But first, okay. So, we've talked a lot about theology. Now, today I want to take a few minutes before we really get started and talk about theologians, okay? So theology and theologians. Um, it almost sounds like a, what's her name, Jane Austen? It almost sounds like a Jane Austen novel or something. Um, so question, does a theological statement have to explicitly quote the Bible in order to be considered trustworthy and true? What do you think? No? Okay, no, I, I, I agree. Um, so what does, how does a theological statement need to connect with Scripture in order, or does it need to connect with Scripture in order to be theologically, um, in order to be trustworthy and true? Yes, sir? It needs to explicitly align with everything in Scripture. Okay, explicitly? Yes. Okay. Okay, we'll, we'll get into to that in a little bit. Um, so, have you ever heard the word, the words, good and necessary consequences? What, what does good and necessary consequences mean? You've heard it. Any idea what it means? No? I mean, it's the spirit of it, right? That the end goal is aligned, so the consequence of whatever the meaning or subject is not like um, not like okay yeah no 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 worries no worries 
Okay. It's more like sanctification than finitude. No, it, okay, so I'll, I'll help you out a little bit. Um, so it's the idea that something doesn't have to be explicit in Scripture, but what you do have to be able to do is trace it back to Scripture, right? Um, I'll give you an example, um, and it's kind of a, a little bit of a disturbing trend in our society, but does the Bible, so question, does AI-generated pornography, is that a sin? Okay. Is AI sinning? Huh? Pardon me? Like, is AI sinning? No. It is a person sinning if they're viewing uh, yeah. artificial intelligence-generated pornography? Yes. Okay. So, is that explicit in Scripture? No, it's not. And the reason I said specifically AI-generated is because everybody knows that you know, the Bible says if you, you know, lust after a, a woman or a person, really, in your heart, then you've, or if you've lusted after them, then you've committed adultery in your, in your heart, okay? But AI-generated stuff is the people that don't exist, right? They're almost like cartoons or something, okay? So the question is, is it still, is that still a, a woman? Is that still a person? And is it still sin? So, what do you guys think? Is it still sin? Yes, it is, right? But it's not explicit in Scripture that it's sin, okay? But what you can do is you look at Scripture, you look at the principles of Scripture, and then what you can, it's, I hate to use the word extend, but you can, logically it makes sense that, well, it's also a sin to, um, to, Look, look and lust after images, even if they are of not of an actual person. Okay, so that's just one application of the idea of the good and necessary consequences of Scripture. Okay, um, there's there's lots of other examples that we could give, but it's the idea that something doesn't have to be um, explicit; it just has to logically follow from Scripture. Okay. So, uh, well, and actually another example, because in the back of my mind, um, I was like, okay, wow, you know, <laughs> not coming up with a lot of examples. But also we can look at the Trinity, an example of, you know, the Trinity of um, the Father and the Son being of the same substance. Nowhere is that explicit in Scripture. You know, those words aren't used, but it's something that's been accepted by um, Orthodox Christians for, you know, 2,000 years. So, what is the role slash value of the theologian? And specifically, I'm talking about one who writes books and gives lectures. I'm not just because everybody's a theologian. Whether you've studied theology or not, everybody has some ideas about God, right? And so, what I'm talking about is the professional theologian that um, has studied and writes books and gives lectures and things like that. What is the value of that person to your Christian walk and to the church in general? Unnecessary. Unnecessary, okay. I'm not saying there's no value. I'm saying it's not unnecessary. It's not unnecessary? Okay. Is there any, so is there any value? Yes, sir. Value is to help you to understand, to explain the scripture better. Okay. So they would be teachers. You know, 
in a way, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. They're spending a lot more time normal person or everything else and they kind of make that their their focus in their life to study and understand better. Right. To take the time to connect all the scripture to you know, understanding help us to understand it better. Obviously we've got to vet it out, but not everybody's gonna have six, seven hours a day to study scripture. Right. These guys kinda of help us. I think good. it is necessary okay. to uh, and better understand. Okay, good. Good. Um, so the idea here is that, um, oh, yes, yes, sir. I was going to say the, the role I think most theologians would say is that they're more like translators. Okay. That they're translating the ideas in Scripture to the current culture. That's why you, you, all, you constantly need more right. theologians because language and culture are changing. Right. And the issues of the day are changing. Right. So you need the people who... <clears throat> Are doing the work of sort of translating what does the Bible say about this in their context to okay. our context. Helping us bridge context, that sort of thing. Okay, good. Yes? Let me clarify my incendiary comment. Uh-huh. I'm not saying there's no value to, to uh, theologians, but if we look at Scripture, I mean, God laid out the plan for mm-hmm. educating mm-hmm. believers, mm-hmm. you know, through, through evangelists, through teachers, through pastors. Um, mm-hmm. Through individuals, right. uh, and so as as teachers would relate to theologians, then that's helpful. The question is: Is it necessary? And I mm-hmm. think the answer is no, because okay. for throughout the dark ages, people were being saved, and there were no theologians right. active in Europe during the dark ages. And so, from that perspective, uh, I would say I'm talking about for the common man, yeah. not for the not for the um, intellectual, right. Uh, they're just weren't any active, and yet God was active because it's ultimately God who is working in us, mm-hmm. not theologians, not. Um, so from that, that's, sure. that's the perspective yeah. I'm trying to say. And so well, as you yeah. as you go through your thing in theology, mm-hmm. I'm not saying Fred, mm-hmm. take a break. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. Right. I'm just saying that. Well, that's really that God yeah. is God <laughs> is bigger than right. than the university. Right. Okay. That's, 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 that's a fair statement. Um, what I'll say is Gutenberg, um, I think Gutenberg changed everything. Because I think even if there were theologians that were for the common man, nobody knew who they were because there was no mass production of, of their works. Yes, ma'am. I guess what I see, and I came out of a tradition where my family went to a church where there was initially a belief that all we need is the Bible. Yeah. We don't need any other teachers. We right. just need the Bible. Right. And I see how erroneously you can go astray when right. you don't have others kind of checks and balances. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you have like Catholicism that says mm-hmm. we really don't need the Bible, we really need right. church fathers. So right. I think somewhere in the middle, you do need the theologians. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, George is saying you don't really yeah. have to have them. I agree uh-huh. with that. I mean, if you didn't have them, you wouldn't. Right. You can still be saved. Yes. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I, it makes me afraid to say yeah. we don't need them at all. Because right. Like, Wait, yes, we do. Yeah. Because we can very easily make mistakes that other people made and then they were corrected. I mean, right. How, how about this? Rather than um, saying we need need them or don't need them, how about just it's less than ideal if we don't have them? That's good. Is that better? Okay, cool. Um, see, you, um, I think, are peeking at my notes or something because you always, like, summarize my whole lesson really well. Yeah, well, no, you, great minds think alike, I guess. There was somebody over here. Somebody else? No? Okay, cool. Um, so, no, good. I, I was hoping to have this kind of interaction today, so it's uh, fun. Um, so what degree should we trust 
a theologian. Only as far as he aligns with Scripture. Okay, good. Like just, uh, so that's night, the Bereans. I think it's Acts 19. Um, so we should always um, test what somebody says against Scripture. Okay, so good. That's a good, good point. Um, well, again, how should their, their statements be tested? Um, again, against Scripture. All right. So my thought here is, and notice the, the heading, opinion alert, right? Um, theologians, the legit ones, right, should be thought of as teachers, not prophets. And what I mean by that is, a lot of people will have their favorite theologian, and you know sometimes it, you know their last name starts with M. I'm not going to mention any names though. Um, and they 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 hear what they say, and they don't even try to trace what they're saying back to Scripture. They don't even worry about any kind of good and necessary consequences of. And I shouldn't say they. I should say we. We have our th- favorite theologian that we you know rely on, and and almost treat them like prophets, like they are the authority of this truth, of where it's coming from, and don't worry about, you know, tracing what they're saying back to Scripture or testing what they're saying with Scripture, right? And what we need to do is treat these folks, you know, respectfully, but treat them um, as teachers, where they're helping us to understand what Scripture says, they're helping us to understand, like Stephen said, the context. Um, they can go back to, you know, um, the back, the cultural setting and background of, of yeah, Sam, um, <laughs> the cultural setting and background of um, of different uh, passages of, of, of scripture. And so theologians are, are like, you know, they're kind of like teachers on steroids, right? But we just need to, you know, treat them as teachers. Yes, sir. Can you clarify what you mean by the prophets? Speaking of their own authority, because I would I would have just naturally said the prophet's authority is come yeah God God has given them that yeah God has given them you know they're they're speaking for and I guess what I'm saying is is we we need to um, not think of theologians as if they're speaking the words of God but yes speaking right their own. yes we have to remember that they're fallible you know because a true prophet is not going to say anything as it relates to God. That's, that's not true. Yes, ma'am? I was just throughout the word uninspired. Yeah, uninspired, yeah. Yeah, they're uninspired. So we shouldn't think of, of what they're saying as some kind of inspired and fallible, like they, they're coming off the mountain or something like that. It's not like new that. revelation. It's not new revelation, exactly. And it's not infallible, exactly. So, but they have presumably have the gift of teaching, presumably, and have set aside a significant portion of their lives to the rigorous study of Scripture and related subjects. So they've studied the culture, they've studied the original language, they've studied things like that. So they bring um, a lot of understanding um, and focused study, a lot of times on specific books or areas of the Bible, that honestly your local pastor, your local teachers aren't going to be able to get down to that level. Okay? So pastors and teachers tend to rely on these theologians pointing to Scripture, and just as I think it's profitable for everyone to do that as well. Okay. So their teachings should point us back to Scripture by explaining the good and necessary consequences of Scripture. Right? And so I remember 
I think it was 2020, if I remember correctly, um, we had, at the elder retreat, we were going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And so one of the books that we read going into this, this meeting was on, was, I think it was called Four Views of the Lord's Supper, if I remember correctly, right? And we, we skipped the, the Catholic one. Um, but we looked at the, the Lutheran view, the um, Reformed view, and the Memorial view. And we, we were talking about kind of the differences and, you know, things of that nature. What was interesting, I won't say which one is which, but one of them was every statement that the writer made, he was pointing back to Scripture. And he was saying, I'm saying this, and this is the way that I get back to Scripture. And it was really, um, it was hard to argue with what he was saying. He was making some very, very good points. And I agree, by and large, with everything that he said. The next one that we read, um, that we looked at, there was literally not a single scriptural quote, not a single text from Scripture that was pulled in to talk about um, the Lord's Supper. And instead, what he did was he quoted theologians. And that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about in that when we're, we're trying to understand these theological truths, we shouldn't be pointing to the theologian unless the theologian is pointing to Scripture, right? And then what we need to do is understand what they're saying, and then we don't even need them. We can just look to Scripture ourselves. Does it make sense? So um, a theologian should be like, a, because you guys may believe what I say, but you're not going to go next, you know, um, to dinner with somebody, and you're not going to quote me, right? Because who am I? I've got no authority, but neither does, you know, in that same way, we shouldn't be quoting, say, John Calvin or Martin Luther as the final authority of these things, right? What we do is we use them to get back to Scripture. Does it make sense? Okay. You quote them when they say it in a way that helps us understand it better. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not going to say we never quote them, right? Um, because they can say some, some wise things, but they're just, we have to understand they're not inspired. Um, yeah, and sometimes getting back to script, it's, sometimes it's just not all that, that straightforward. Sometimes it is. Uh, however, we must remember that they're fallen too, and I think I've already made that comment. Um, one of the things, and you know, just to throw out there, it's something to think about, is when you pick up a book um, that's, that's published in this day and age, um, especially at a, a quote-unquote Christian bookstore, these, you have to remember these folks are always, you know, they, they've signed contracts for a certain number of books, and they've got to come out with something new. You know, they're, they're, it seems like nine times out of ten, they're not going to be writing kind of the quote-unquote same old thing. Um, they've got to come up with a new spin or a new, you know, something on, on the Bible. And so that's where we have to be careful in that are they trying to be novel, are they intentionally trying to be novel, or are they truly glorifying God in what they say, right? Um, my favorite living theologian is um, D.A. Carson, and I was actually going to bring him up a few minutes ago. Um, D.A. Carson writes things that are, are they're very, very profound, but they're very scriptural. He just, he just oozes scripture when, he, when he's teaching. Uh, you can tell that he, he understands what it is that he's, he's you know, the subject matter of, of what he's talking about. And so, um, you know, I've come to 
to trust him in a way where I don't always go back and verify everything that he says, you know. But when I first started reading him, I did. But now he's got a really solid track record, right? But if he says anything wonky, um, then I can't imagine that happening, but I would definitely check it out. Um, can things be made too complicated? Yes, they can. But we also need to avoid oversimplification. Okay? So those are two, two poles, you know, two extremes that we want to, want to avoid. Can you expand on that a little bit? Which part? Yeah. Oh. Um, if, you're, if you're teaching a theology class, that's that's one thing. If you're sharing the gospel, uh, then then you can oversimplify from a theologian's perspective because because the gospel is a very simple message, right? Extremely simple, and so we we can we can oversimplify the simple and mm-hmm. leave out important details, but we also don't need to go into, when we're sharing the gospel, we don't necessarily, uh, well, we don't have to at all, because God right. is going to take the pure gospel yeah. and and work in the heart of someone who is already re- regenerated, and so the simple sure. gospel will, will ring true. Mm-hmm. The subsequent teaching, um, you know, as you want to expand on on uh, your knowledge and awareness of Christ and his love, mm-hmm. you know, the Ephesians you know, 3 thing, then there's more more to be had there. But mm-hmm. but there's some things that you, sure. the gospel is just simple and, and everything else is... In a, 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 the, the way um, I've, I've explained this in the past in terms of the, the gospel being simple, um, the gospel is one of those things where, you know, a kindergartner can understand it, you know. Um, anybody can understand the, the basic. Sure, sure. Um, so anybody can can understand the basic tenets of the gospel, um, but we can also spend the rest of our lives plumbing its depths and never get there, right? So what we're talking about here is not so much. Um, I'm going to go, um, you know, try to oversimplify something in terms of. Of, of sharing the gospel with somebody, but it, it's more in the in the in the realm of teaching within the church, within God's body, right? With redeemed believers is really kind of the context of what we're talking about. Good. Yeah, an, an illustration of this would be somebody who tries to explain the Trinity by saying, "Well, the Trinity is like per shampoo, you've got shampoo and conditioner in one bottle. It's, it's all the same thing. Well, the Trinity is not explained by right. that at all. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's... Uh... <laughs> I, I've never heard that Trinity analogy. I thought I'd heard them all. That's awesome. I will tell you where I heard it. That is my f- new favorite, by the way. I will tell you that. Um, I will tell you where I heard it. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe off, off mic, because I, I got to know. Um, unless it was pert, you know, but anyway, one, go ahead. One quick thing. I, I love Ephesians 3. Paul's yeah. prayer where, where he's praying that the Ephesians would, would and I you know, at all, but that they would learn the love, the full mm-hmm. measure of the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then he finishes that with a verse that's often used in other applications. He mm-hmm. says, now to him who is able to do far more yeah. 
beyond that mm -hmm. we could think or ask via praise and right, right. Yeah. Amen. And so, and so there is so much to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays mm -hmm. that. I pray that for myself. Right. And, and I know that God, who is able to do more, even more than I could ask, mm -hmm. will answer that prayer right. in some way. Mm -hmm. and so whether it's through a theologian mm -hmm. or through just him taking what I have learned mm -hmm. and enlightening me to, to the, the, the implications of it, mm -hmm. God is going to accomplish that. Right. right. Exactly. All right. So... What is the value of supplementing our scripture reading with other God-honoring Christian books? It's a related topic, but what do you think? Yes, ma'am. I think that... Hold on, hold on, I'm sorry. Did you have your hand raised? No, I didn't no. Oh, okay, I thought you were raising your hand. Because you can answer if you want to. No, you're good? Okay. Go ahead, go ahead Hannah. <laughs> I think that part of the value of, of reading um, extra-biblical texts, uh, like theological books, right. Christian books, uh, it gives us a common vocabulary to talk about doctrine with other Christians. Uh -huh. And so we can spend hopefully a little less time carefully defining our terms and a right. little more time actually talking about the meat of the issue. Good, good. And like Stephen said earlier, it can help to uh, talk about application of Scripture to like modern um, yeah. situations. Yeah, good. And kind of where I was, and that's, that's a great point, and where I was kind of going here is, well, if you're reading scripture and you come away with, um, pardon me, you come away with a belief, a teaching, a doctrine, whatever, that's wrong. It's not, not the truth, you know? And then um, you, you don't, read other people, other theologians. You don't, you don't read anybody, and the only people that um, you interact with are the people, maybe your local congregation or whatever, and everybody kind of believes the same thing, and now you're kind of off in an offshoot here, okay? Um, you know, and potentially you can see where those things can diverge, and you can end up, you know, really far away from orthodoxy, okay? So one of the things about, you know, uh, reading other God-honoring Christian books is that, you know, we've got 2,000 years of, of Christian history of God providing teachers, preachers, you know, men of God throughout all this time. And if we're not using it, if we're not accessing it, and I'm not saying all of it, but if we're not accessing it, then I think we're impoverishing ourselves. You know, I think we're leaving way too much on the table, you know? And so I think that reading what, again, wonderful Christians have written over the last 2,000 years is a very, very profitable um, endeavor. Um, and even books on other subjects, I think, are, you know, Christians need to read more, I think is, is really what, what I'm getting at. You need to, uh, but like it says, supplement your scriptural reading with, with other things. Yes, ma'am. How do you um, reckon the statement that you made of somebody being impoverished for not using a book or the work with the sufficiency of Scripture? Hmm. Great point. So, Scripture is sufficient in that everything is there. Um, 
everything is explicit in Scripture in what you need to be a person of God, right? In order, in order to glorify God, that sort of thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're going to interpret everything appropriately. That doesn't mean that you're going to interpret everything by yourself um, in a God-honoring way. And so that's one of the reasons why um, in Scripture it talks about teachers. You know, teacher, a teacher is an office of the church, where a teacher is not a preacher. A preacher is proclaiming the gospel. A teacher is, has the gift of teaching and sets aside time and focus um, to understand Scripture at, um, you know, I hate to say different level, but different aspects of, of Scripture, and then brings it to uh, the congregation, to the church, in order to, to help um, uh, edify them, right? So those books are, because they're God-honoring Christian books, they're like on par with a teacher, basically? That, that's my assertion, yes. Yes. And it's an assertion, Right. There's a dip, but there's a difference between, uh, there is a slight, you know, a difference between your teacher at your local congregation that you're interacting with and asking questions of and things like that, between that and say, you know, like I mentioned a little while ago, D.A. Carson. You know, D.A. Carson's not accessible. He's going to write things, and if I misunderstand what he says or I have a question or whatever, well, actually I did send him an email. He answered me. It was pretty cool. Um, but um, what's that? No, no, I, yeah, I just didn't delete it, that's all. Uh, does it make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yes, go ahead. One, the pastor's role is not to just proclaim the gospel. He is, he is the teacher. Right. He is there to, to give us the sense of the words, what the uh-huh. Bible says. So he is, yeah. he is a teacher by definition. Right. Um, how the teacher-pastor distinction is in Scripture, I'm not, right. not altogether going to make that complete argument. Right. But the thing about the theologians, and this is, I think, is probably where I differ from the tack you're going down, is that is that the theology, the exercise into the depths of theology is, and, I, and don't mis, don't take this wrong, but it's for the intellectual elite. There are people that are simple. They have they struggle reading second grade level. See, and I addressed that in the like the first couple of classes that we taught that. Everybody's a theologian. You, you can't say anything about Christ without making a theological statement. That is theology. Uh, but it's not reading theologians. Um, talking about this thing that we all need to be reading those, those um, I'm not, yeah. And so what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that you have to read Herman Bovink. I mean, I know Oswald Chambers might be, you know, a devotional, you know, um, there's all sorts of books that are profitable. I think reading um, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, which is essentially a biography, it's a his- history of what she went through during, um, during the uh, World War, you know, Second World War. Even those things, are, those things are profitable. It gets us outside of our little echo chambers, right? And so we learn things. We learn things about God. We learn things about Scripture. We learn things about one another when we read things, when we read, right? And there, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no... There's nothing wrong no. with it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with not doing that either. 
as long as you're spending your time, we're talking about opinions, this is my opinion, as long as we are buried in the scripture of God, the spirit of God is the one that's going to teach us anyway. It's never the theologian. Right. is never going to teach us anything of value. It's always going to be the spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to use theologians, teachers, in order to teach us things. So, and so he's going to accomplish that through right. scripture and, and... So let's go to scripture. So when we look at... Um, here's an example that I like to use, right? So <clears throat> if you look at... Numbers. I think it's 13 and 14, if I remember correctly. Um, the Israelites are getting ready to go into the land. And what does Moses do? He sends in spies. Okay? The spies go, and what do they do? They freak out because they see these giants. And all of a sudden, you know, in, even though God had said, I'm with you, I will be with you, you're going to, you're going to win, you're going to, you know, everything's going to be great, um, they were still afraid and didn't want to go in. And so what were the consequences of that? They were told that they were, they were made to wander around in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, So fast forward 40 years, it's the end of the wilderness wilding. Wilderness wilding? <laughs> wilderness wandering. <laughs> and um, so... Joshua is now in charge, and he's one of the guys that was one of the spies in the first place, right? And so they're standing at the Jordan. What's the first thing he does? God told him that he was going to be with him, right? That he will deliver the Canaanites into their hands. What's the first thing that Joshua does? He sends in spies. Does that mean that Joshua lacked faith? Does that mean that, that somehow he was going to wrestle... Um, take credit for, the, for what was happening? Does it mean that he didn't have faith that God was going to be with them? No, it didn't. What it meant was he trusted God, but he also understood that that did not remove his obligation to be a tactical commander. He did what he was supposed to do in order to be a military commander. God's sovereignty does not remove our responsibility to do what we're supposed to do. So, when we're studying scripture, when we're studying Christianity, yes, it's the spirit that teaches us. But we use um, theologians, teachers, things of that nature, people of that nature in order to, to learn. That's how the spirit teaches us. Yes, ma'am. I think one example from scripture of that is the Philippian eunuch. Uh-huh. So he's reading the scripture in his chariot. He can't understand what he's reading. The spirit obviously could have just opened his eyes, but instead yeah. he sent Philip. That's a great example. Yeah, really good. Yes, ma'am. About Second Timothy, right? So uh-huh. he's saying you've learned these things from these people, right? Your uh-huh. mother, your grandmother, from Paul. But then follows yeah. up with all Scripture is breathed out by God. So right. like clearly standing on Scripture, but using teachers to help yes. explain that. Good, good, excellent, good point. All right. Is it good to read authors that we do not agree with? I don't know why I'm so out of breath. Um, anyway, go ahead. Oh, profitable? Yeah. yeah. Is it profitable to read authors that we do not agree with? Okay. You want to justify? What's that? Why don't we agree with them? Exactly. 
Yeah. yeah. It gives us an opportunity to exercise critical thinking and to, when we read something and it strikes us in a way that we're like, no, that's not right, then you right. dig in and you, right. you figure out why. For right. some reason, we talk to people we don't disagree with because you kind of right. sharpen each other. How do you learn anything if you're, if you're not talking to anybody that you're, you, you disagree with? Different perspectives. What's that? <laughs> oh, exactly. Sometimes right. when I read someone I don't agree with, I realize that I'm wrong. Right. And sometimes I come away with a more articulate way to debunk their point of view. Right. Yep. No, that's, that's great. Exactly. So sometimes um, when, we, when we're talking to somebody and they say something that we disagree with, I think, do I? Um, um, they say something that we, you know, we disagree with. Um, you know, it's good to find out why they're saying what they're saying. Because there's the possibility that we could learn something. There's also the possibility that through the interaction, they could learn something. So we may change their mind, they may change our mind. But if we just dig in our heels and say, um, no, I disagree with you, um, you know, therefore you're, I don't know, heretic or whatever. Um, and move on, and I'm going to go hang out with the people that I that agree with me on everything that I say. Then we don't ever learn anything, you know. I'm not going to say. Well, that's a little bit of an extreme step. We do learn things, um, but we never have a, a a course correction. You know, the spirit can open our hearts or our our eyes. Yes. Um, but by and large, he uses means in order to accomplish his will. And so generally, he's going to use a teacher or a preacher or somebody to, um, to do that. Yes, sir. I think there's also subjects where eschatology is an example, uh-huh. where the, the right answer is not explicitly defined in Scripture. Right. Where there are mm-hmm. different interpretations and... Right. So reading someone who has a different view on, on the end times than we do helps you to understand that, okay, there, there may be another, another avenue here mm-hmm. that I haven't right. And, and, and it's the sort of thing where there is a right answer, but, but how do we know we're on that right answer versus the Christian brother or sister being on that right answer? And then how do we, you know, and so it, I think understanding where they're coming from and if they're making good, valid, biblical points, then I think it helps us to, to understand one another just that much better. Yes, sir? I also wouldn't just give it a blanket yes, though. Okay. Yes. It, it, it can be good to read authors we don't agree with. Good. Also, the father of lies is probably around seeking to devour and destroy. Right, and yep. You could be reading an author that you disagree with right. who is very effective at leading you astray. Okay. So reading with a critical eye, developing mm-hmm. a skill of, of critical reasoning is an important caveat to, right. yes, it's good to read authors we don't agree with, right. reading carefully. Right. And, that, and that's a great point, right? So um, a few years ago, and this gets into the next question of how about heretics or false religions, a few years ago, I, I read a bunch of atheistic stuff, right? I was reading, because I, I wanted to understand kind of, you know, logically speaking, um, you know, where the, you know, 
What, what were the atheist objections and stuff? And I get it. They're, they know that God exists, and in unrighteousness, they're, they're denying that, right? Um, but also, there's something going on in their, in their minds, right? And so, um, and so I kind of went, and it was kind of a, read some dark stuff, you know? It was, it was bad. I would never, ever tell a new believer, actually, I wouldn't tell any of y'all to, to do anything like that or to read any of that stuff because, um, it, it, because it can send you astray, right? In terms of the, the false religions, um, I think it's helpful to be familiar with Mormonism, with Jehovah's Witnesses, with Islam, with Hinduism, what it is that these different religions believe because when we talk to them and when we evangelize to them, we, like I said last week, we use the, you know, what Moses and what Paul did, and that is, one, we speak in a language that they can understand. Two, we um, point out, basically, or we draw attention to or subvert their worldview that they have, okay, their false religion, that we, um, we subvert their, their false religion in some way. And then thirdly, um, we don't give them room to just absorb Christianity or, or Christ into what it is that their, whatever their false religion is, okay? And so um, uh, we, again, in order, because like when you talk to a Mormon, a Mormon will use very Christian language, but unless you understand what they're, they're actually saying and what they mean by the words that they're, they're saying, then you can, you can really be lulled asleep, I guess you could say. But yeah, we always have to use discernment in everybody that we, we read. So when do we, or, he, or I'm sorry, so when, when we do read or hear something that we disagree with, how should we respond? I think we've kind of already covered that, right? There you go, yeah. Facebook is always the answer, right? <laughs> um, yeah, or if it's YouTube, yeah, give them a thumbs down, right? Um, well, no, too, too often um, we, you know, kind of Christianity at large, when somebody says something that, that we disagree with, then, it, again, we, we tend to alienate them. And we, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be interacting and saying, okay, why do, you, why do you say that? And then hear out their answer. Hear out what they, what they have to say. And then, um, you know, sometimes you're going to agree. Sometimes you're not going to agree. Um, there's some things that are fall on your sword worthy, and there's other things that, that are not. And it takes discernment, I think, to figure that out. Oh, boy. So we're actually getting to the actual lesson now. Um, but I think we'll save that for next week. So what do you, um, any other thoughts? No? Go ahead. More going back to the, the why is it worthwhile to read other books yep. in general. Mm-hmm. Because our society and we in general are just bad at reading, period. Yeah. And so the more you read, the more you're able to actually read the scriptures and understand them. Right. Because I think so many people kind of go into Bible reading mode where we read the Bible totally differently than we read any other literature. Yeah. And we dice it up and read a verse and ask, mm-hmm. what does this mean for me? And right. Instead of just just reading it, like right. a book, 
And if we read more books, then we'd be better at just reading it like a book and walk away with right. what it actually means. Right. Like, so a good example of this would be like church history. You know, how profitable is it to read books on church history? You know, to understand what's happened over the last 2,000 years, how God has moved and how man has moved and how God has moved and man has moved against him, you know, that sort of thing, right? Um, you know, when people object to, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity saying, you know, Constantine, when you, when you read about the deity of Christ and you read, you know, people are going to see the Da Vinci Code in movie theaters or they're, they're reading, you know, the novel, um, you know, they'll make the statement that the de deity of Christ was created whole cloth, basically, in 325 A.D. by the Constantine, uh, by the Emperor Constantine. You know, if you're not familiar with church history, how do you respond to something like that, right? Um, and it's an absolute fabrication. Dan Brown might be a, you know, a brilliant fiction writer, but he's a terrible historian. You know, um, there's all kinds of problems with that. And if you read church history then you understand, um, understand that, right? Um, other things that are profitable, you know, Dan Wallace is a guy who studies textual criticism. And, textu you know, we've actually done some of his stuff in here. And textual criticism is, is the, the, um, the, the science of getting back to the original wording of, of a text, okay? And so what he does is he looks at all the textual variants and all the different copies of manuscripts and things that, that, that we have and helps us to, to get back to what it, was, what it originally said. And by, by, by understanding that, again, it's, you know, there's, there's confidence that we have in Scripture, that we have actually what um, the apostles you know, wrote um, you know, 2,000 years ago. Um, we understand that it's not translated and retranslated and retranslated again, you know. Uh, another area that's, that's good to study is um, looking at, like we, again, like we've talked about in here, the Gnostic Gospels, okay? Are, are they even Gospels? No, no, they're really not. They're heretical writings that were written hundreds of years um, past the, the time of Christ. No living, there was no disciple living in those, in those days. And they're very anti-Christian writings but um, they, they're not explicitly anti-Christian. They're implicitly anti-Christian because they teach some very, very bad theology. And so the idea there is, well, if you're, if you're familiar with, with that, then you're able to, to interact with the professor sitting, you know. Um, back in harvest days, there was a, a, a young lady who, in our um, uh, college group, who had a, a, a professor who was talking about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and all of this stuff, saying that Christians had torn that out of the Bible and that, that those are Gospels that should be a part of the Bible. And by talking to her with, you know, um, uh, walking her through church history and how those things actually developed, one, it, it, it set her mind at ease a little bit um, but secondly, she was actually able to ask some fairly embarrassing questions to, to the pro professor and help some of her, her friends and stuff, right? So, you know, reading these things, um, whether it's theology, it's um, church history, it's any number of things, is, is often 
very, a very, very profitable thing to do. And it's also, again, things profitable, um, can be profitable in many cases to read people that we suspect that we disagree with. So um, any other thoughts, concerns, questions? I'm not so worried about concerns as I'm questioning. No? Good. Cool. Stephen, do you mind? Father, we thank you for another day. Thank you for another breath. We love you and praise you, and I ask that you would use our uh, time coming up in worship to uh, consider who you are, grow closer to each other and closer to you, and use the uh, sacrament of communion to bring us into union with each other and your spirit. Always, Lord, I ask that your will would be done above all else. It's in your son's name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.